How should we celebrate it? Uh, the idea of African Liberation Day has its origins in the long history of African people fighting for freedom and fighting to free ourselves from the domination and the white supremacist past that uh, clearly been a, a significant part of uh, what has happened to African people worldwide. Right. We have a oneness. We have a common past. We have a, a common future. We have greater power when we act in solidarity and in unity, and that's why we see the millions of African people worldwide as, as our people, as a common uh, unity core, and as uh, a liberation quest that we must forever uh, put forth, not only in the United States, but around the diaspora. Absolutely, absolutely. Definitely agree with that. Well, you know, this year's theme for uh, the two-day event, African Liberation Day 2017, this year's theme here in Detroit is Reparations, Resistance, Rebellion, Liberation Through Education. Reparations, Resistance, Rebellion, Liberation Through Education. Now, I know yesterday at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, at the end of the program, you gave a plug for African Liberation Day. You talked about the reparations bill that has been altered uh, in Congress and introduced by uh, the Honorable John Conyers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one of the great events that will happen on uh, Friday, May 26th, as we kick off African Liberation Day at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History at 6 p.m., mm -hmm. Dr. Ron Daniels, who has put together a, a, a wonderful National African American Reparations Commission to uh, kind of jumpstart the reparations movement beyond where it has been, uh, not uh, subjugating any of the other reparations groups like in COBRA, right. but taking it to another level. Dr. Ron Daniels has worked closely with Congressman John Connors and also Pam Howard, who is an COBRA leader from Chicago, mm -hmm. along with that, uh, that bad sister, Tony Mkichi Taifa, who's coming, yes. and Dr. Julianne Albo and others to make sure that the Reparations Study Bill, first introduced at the behest of Reparations Ray Jenkins from Detroit in 89, uh, finally got uh, rewritten, readdressed, and refocused. So it, it's uh, positioning the significant implementation of reparations. So no longer is it uh, an item for study. It's an issue for uh, evolution. And that is uh, going to be really the breaking news at this convention for the uh, African Liberation Day. And that's exciting. That will happen with a wonderful panel and the leadership of Dr. Ron Daniels, who, as you know, is the founder of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century. Yes. He's a Black World Conference. Yes. And is uh, prolific on uh, this uh, movement for the liberation of our people. As a matter of fact, Ron Daniels is co-founder of the National African Liberation Day movement. He was the co-founder of the very first African Liberation Day. So it's very fitting that he'd be here in Detroit. And, of course, this is the 50th anniversary of the 67 Rebellion. So right. the, and, and the resistance of, of white supremacy, much of that which is still going on in Detroit. I think Detroit has been targeted because of our blackness mm -hmm. for decimation by the so-called powers that be. So it was a good time for African people to come together to move for liberation and uh, reparation resistance and to address the issues of the 67 Rebellion. Absolutely, absolutely. 
All right, so this is taking place Friday, May 26th, starting at 6 p.m. Both days are free. Come on out, bring the family. And Saturday, May 27th, starting at 10 a.m. Uh, Saturday usually runs about 6 p.m., 5 or 6 p.m., something like that. I'm speaking on Saturday as well. Now, uh, right. now you, you're going to love my presentation on Saturday because Saturday I'm going to deal with a lot that's what's going on right now with the Trump administration, and I'm going to deal with the impact of Donald Trump's policies, his appointments, his nominations, things like this, on the African-American community in the first 100-plus days of his uh, administration. Okay, that's what I'm going to deal with, how his policies impacted us and, and, what, and some of the things we need to do to fight back against this. And also, I'm going to deal with the people who say we shouldn't vote and our vote doesn't matter. My question is, why are they working so hard to keep you from voting? Because you had, right. you had, you have 14 new states that had voter ID, that had new voter ID laws this past, uh, right. this past uh, election cycle. And this was the first presidential election that did not have the full weight of the, of the voting rights act of 65. The section five was struck That's down exactly by the Supreme right. Court. Okay. So I got a That's whole exactly bunch of right. stuff that people don't even talk about uh, dealing with how they were trying to suppress our vote. And they did it on purpose because right. they understood the power of our vote and it scared the hell out of them. Okay. All right. Now, um, so this is taking place at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History um, uh, this Saturday and Sunday, uh, Friday, May 26th, okay. Saturday, May 27th. Go ahead. Yes. 6 p.m. Friday night is a formal program. And for the first time, mm -hmm. there's a special youth uh, program that happens during the day on Friday from 10 a.m. until 1130 with young people in the Pan-African Nationalist Movement talking to high schoolers and middle school, middle school students from Detroit. So that would be wonderful. Then there's okay. a reception at 4 and at 6 p.m. The formal program will begin with our national leaders. Uh, on Saturday, there will be a march around the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History at 10 a.m. And at 12, there will be a program featuring uh, local icons like Michael M. Hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be a uh, cultural uh, engagement. Uh, there will be a presentation made by every sponsor. We want to thank you for agreeing to be a sponsor yes. once again yes. of African Liberation Day. Yeah, and we have an African oh, marketplace there also. We have an African marketplace there both days as well. So come on, support that's that. Right, and we, mm -hmm. That's right. We want to keep black dollars circulating in our community. And one way to do that is to make sure that everyone partakes of the vendors who will be there supporting African Liberation Day. All those lead to the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History mm -hmm. on this Friday and Saturday. And actually, it's a continuation of the support for uh, honoring and commemorating the birthday of Malcolm X that we did this weekend. Of course, his birthday yes. was May 19th. Right. But when you consider the Republic of New Africa founder, uh, Mario Bedelli, also known as Richard Henry, and uh, Reverend Milton Henry, that Gaidi Bedelli, they were very, very, very close to Malcolm X, and they uh, really founded Republic of New Africa to help fulfill the goals and the aims and the destiny of, of Mal Brother Malcolm. Mm -hmm. So their work in helping to found and cope with the reparations movement is certainly a part of what drives this program on this weekend. Absolutely. Well, look, um, everybody, uh, come on out this Saturday. We, the information is at theright.org, theright.org, W-R-I-G-H-T, theright.org. Uh, we have the information at our website also, africanhistorynetwork.com, africanhistorynetwork.com. African Liberation Day 2017. And I say, if you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, 
will you wear red, black, and green at African Liberation Day? For, oh, for, come on now. You better for, say it. You better for, say that. For, for, for African Americans who celebrate St. Patrick's Day, go ahead. Go hey, ahead. Go ahead. Hey, if you're African and you know it, you really ought to show it by showing up at African Liberation Day this year at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, May 26th, starting at 6 p.m. and all day Saturday. Absolutely. All right, sister, you take care. And Oh, uh, give people a shout-out. Uh, uh, when does your show come on on 19 a.m. Superstation? Uh, my show comes on from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. Every, at 6 a.m., you can hear a woman saying, wake up, Detroit. Right. <laughs> All right. All right, uh, Queen Mother Joanne Watson, we'll talk to you, and we'll see you uh, this weekend, okay? We love you, Michael M. Tap. All right, sister, take care. Peace. Okay. So you listen to uh, Joanne Watson every Saturday morning, uh, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation. Okay. Um, and uh, later on in the show, we'll talk some about uh, we'll talk some more about African Liberation Day as well. And we're going to talk about the 92nd uh, birthday of Malcolm X as well. Okay. Okay. So last week, you know, we talked a little bit about voter suppression. And we talked about how uh, 2017, I mean, 2016, I should say, 2016 uh, presidential election. This was the first uh, election that you did not have the full weight of uh, the full power of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Because Section 5, which was the pre-clearance, was struck down in 2013 by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court case of Shelby versus Holder, all right? And uh, we talked a little bit about the article from the Pew Research and looking at Census Bureau data that showed you had a record uh, number of Americans who voted. When you look at raw numbers, 137.5 million. But for uh, African-American voters, turnout declined um, from 66 percent, 66.6 percent in the 2012 presidential election to 59.6 percent in the 2016 presidential election. And you had a seven uh, percentage point drop, right? This is the lowest percentage point of registered African-American voters in uh, 20 years. And you had rampant voter suppression taking place. We talked about how Wisconsin, you know, the nation.com uh, had an article, uh, Wisconsin's voter ID law suppressed 200,000 votes in 2016. Trump won by 22,748 votes. Check out this article from the nation.com by Ari Berman. Wisconsin's voter ID law suppressed 200,000 votes in 2016. Trump won by 22,748 votes. A new study shows how voter ID laws decreased turnout among African Americans and Democratic voters. Um, and then you had Donald Trump, who uh, signed an executive order in between meeting with Sergey Kislyak, the uh, uh, Russian ambassador and uh, Lavrov, uh, Russian foreign minister, I think he was, in, 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 in between uh, uh, firing Jim Comey and trying to intimidate a potential witness on Twitter, Trump signs a executive order creating an election integrity commission. And this commission is supposed to investigate massive voter, uh, massive uh, voter fraud that he claimed. He claimed that 3 million or 5 million people voted illegally in this past presidential election. And he claimed this is why Hillary Clinton won by about 3 million, won the popular vote by about 3 million votes. Well, he appoints Chris Kobach, who uh, 
is known to implement voter suppression tactics, uh, who's, who uh, is the um, uh, Secretary of State for uh, Kansas, for the state of Kansas, and Chris Kobach is going to be um, uh, the vice chair of this election commission. Now, Chris Kobach has been sued four times successfully for voter suppression. He's the man behind the uh, cross-check system. We'll talk about that in just a minute here. The cross-check system, which effectively uh, wiped off 1.1 million people across the country off of the voter rolls, and they targeted uh, people who they thought were uh, uh, non-white people, especially African-Americans and Hispanics, who they felt had a, uh, were predisposed to vote Democratic. Greg Palace, who's an investigative reporter and uh, made the documentary The Best Money Democracy Can Buy, uh, Greg Palace talked about the cross-check system, and uh, he said he estimates that before the last election, 1.1 million voters were removed from the voter rolls in states where cross-check where, where cross was used. Okay, um, You have the article from, uh, it's an article from uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com, um, as well, uh, dealing with um, how to make 7 million uh, voters disappear, something like that also. But they also have another article from AtlantaBlackStar.com. New study confirms what we already knew. Voter ID laws are already, voter ID laws are incredibly racist. Voter ID laws are incredibly racist. Well, on AM Joy with Joanne Reed, um, May 14th, okay, which was uh, last week and last Sunday, uh, they discussed the African-American voter turnout falling to its lowest point in 20 years, okay? Uh, and they discussed all of this, and on the panel, she not only has Ari Berman, who wrote a, a big article about this, who wrote a series of articles about this for TheNation.com, but she also has investigative rec- reporter Greg Pallast, uh on the uh, panel as well, okay? Let's go to this clip. All right, we'll go to this clip in just a minute here. We're getting this up and running for you. So, um, so Greg Palace talked about not just voter suppression and not just investigation, not and not just the uh, cross check system, but he also talked about how the cross check system was used here in the state of Michigan. Okay, let's go to this clip. The midterm elections in a year and a half are so important. Let me just give you two words why they're important. Subpoena power. If the Democrats control the House, we can control the subpoenas. That means we can do a real investigation and demand documents and have witnesses come and testify. That's why the midterm elections are so important in a year and a half. Good morning and welcome back to AM Joy. New voter data should set off alarm bells both for Republicans hoping to hold on to their seats and Democrats looking to take them. A Pew Research analysis finds that the rate of black voter turnout in 2016 fell for the first time in 20 years, while white and Asian turnout increased. And the highly anticipated surge in decisive Latino voting never materialized. The Washington Post concluded that without that shift in turnout, the states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, quote, might have gone not to Trump, but to Clinton, giving Clinton an electoral college victory. None of this happened in a vacuum. As the nation's Ari Berman points out, the 2016 election was the first in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. And 14 states had new voting restrictions in effect for the first time. 
And we'd ex we can expect more of the same in 2018, because this week, Trump created a commission to investigate, quote, vulnerabilities in the voting system. And Chris Kobach, the, the guy that Trump put in charge, has a record of restricting voting rights so long that the ACLU has pronounced him the king of voter suppression. And joining me now are Janae Nelson from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Ari Berman, author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, investigative journalist Greg Pallast, Crystal Ball, senior fellow at New Leaders Council, and Robbie Jones, CEO for the Public Religion Research Institute, a mega panel to talk about voting. And I want to sort of talk, bifurcate this, guys, and talk about it in sort of a part A, part B. So part A, I want to talk about this dramatic and historic, really, reduction in African-American turnout in the 2016 presidential election, starting with you, Ari, and then Greg, and then Janae, was this a matter of reduced interest in voting or voter suppression, in your view? It was both, Joy. So as you mentioned in your intro, it was the first presidential election in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. 14 states, including some very important swing states, had new restrictions on voting for the first time. I just wrote about a study this week that came out by Priorities USA about Wisconsin. It found that 200,000 votes were suppressed in Wisconsin by that state's voter ID law. Donald Trump only won the state of Wisconsin, remember, by 23,000 votes. That study specifically said that in states with strict voter ID laws, the black vote decreased by up to 5%. And so there were a lot of different reasons why turnout was down. But voter suppression was definitely part of this. And I'm very concerned because now this problem, because Trump has started this new uh, voter fraud, quote unquote, commission, this problem is going to get worse. And we're not talking about the real problem in American elections, which is voter suppression. The problem isn't that millions of people voted illegally. The problem is that thousands of people tried to vote and weren't able to because of voter suppression laws. And, and Greg Pallas, you've uh, written very uh, critically and voluminously about Chris Kobach. I want you to talk a little bit about him. But you were also critical of this Washington Post story that talked about the decline in uh, voting by African-Americans and the change in African-American voting rates by uh, by white and African-American uh, voters. We can show that chart if we could uh, that sort of shows which went in which direction. It's kind of hard to read, but white turnout went way up and African-American turnout went way down. Um, talk a little bit about Chris Kobach, the guy who's supposedly going to investigate voter fraud. But in your view, I think you, you believe that the turn that the decline in African-American voting was about suppression. Well, yeah, first of all, putting Chris Kobach in charge of investigating uh, vote theft is like putting Al Capone in charge of investigating the mob. This is the vote suppressor in chief for Donald Trump, Chris Kobach, Secretary of State of Kansas. And one of the key parts, one of the key reasons why Trump is sitting in the Oval Office is that Chris Kobach um, created a list of seven million names to remove from the voter rolls, about 1.1 million names were removed from the voter rolls, overwhelmingly minority voters. How did he do this? Remember, Trump said that 3 million people were voting twice. It's not a crazy statement unless you think he's crazy like a fox. That accusation that people were voting twice was actually used to remove 1.1 million voters based on a list of alleged double voters created by this guy, Chris Kobach. He literally had a list of 7 million names that he claimed 3.5 million people potentially voting twice. They didn't arrest anyone, but... They removed 1.1 million voters in swing states, including Michigan. I was there in Michigan, talked to the, to the uh, voting officials. They said that of the half million 
suspected double voters or double registered voters that Kobach gave them that they aggressively removed uh, tens of thousands. So we, um, in other words, I would say that we lost 50,000 voters. Trump's margin was 10,700. And this happened in 30 Republican-controlled states. That's just one of Chris Kobach's tricks. And it's the one trick that may have uh, cost Clinton the White House. So it's not that black voters are too lazy to come out to vote. It's that they are trying to vote and their names have disappeared from the voter rolls. And, and you know, Chris Kobach has a long history. Um, back when he was the uh, Kansas uh, uh, Secretary of State, um, he initiated so. nine different voter fraud investigations or, or multiple voter fraud investigations. Okay, we're going to pause it right there. We'll pick this up on the other side of the break. We'll talk some more about this cross-checking system. And this is why I, I talked about the voter suppression taking place for months. This is why I said we had to come out in record numbers. Because I'm looking at the voter suppression taking place, and we had to come out in record numbers to overcome that, and we didn't. We didn't do that. We'll talk about this some more on the other side of the break. Let's to the African History Network show, right here on 19 a.m. Superstation, the Voice of Detroit. I'm Michael M. Hotep, and weather by Weather Vision in Detroit is partly cloudy and 70 degrees. Dress accordingly. We'll be back in a few minutes. When you think of the voices of Detroit, there's only one station that comes to mind: 9:10 a.m. Superstation. We're the voice of reason. My mother often tells me that she used to work with Jewish doctors who would introduce their very young children by saying, this is my son, he's going to be a surgeon. Or this is my daughter, she's going to be a lawyer. They began planting the seeds early in hopes that they would take root and become self-fulfilling prophecies. We in the African-American community criticized mother because she changed her son's name to that of his father, who happened to be one of the greatest mayors this country has ever seen. The voice of comedy. Who's the young lady you brought with you, by the way? She was trying to take your photos. That's your wife, your girlfriend? Oh. Girlfriend. Okay, because sometimes they different, you know. <laughs> are you go, are you marrying her or what? No, you're not marrying. I'm not married. No, it's no. I said, are you going to marry her? On the spot? Oh, let me yeah. start, let me get out of there. Me, I'm trying to get, be her life coach. We are 9:10 a.m. Superstation, the voice of Detroit. 9:10 a.m. is everywhere you need us to be, literally. Broadcasting from Comerica Park, Race for the Cure. Susan G. Coleman, Carmanis, Race for the Cure, going on strong. And we are here live and in color. 9, 10 a.m. Superstation. I'm Joanne Watson. We have a wonderful, wonderful special guest. It is wonderful to be here at the NAACP dinner once again here in Detroit. Tonight is a showcase of the power of the city of Detroit. The power of the NAACP to stand up for truth and justice. All of you have the power in your hands, and tonight we are showing that power. Well, we're not in the studio. We're actually at Mi Pablo Restaurant at 7278 Dix Avenue on this fall through Friday. It is also Cinco de Mayo. The best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. 910 AM Superstation, the voice of Detroit. Be sure to catch Doing the D with Alexander Zonchek right here on 910 AM Superstation. And you know what that means? Lots of cool stuff. If you love gospel and jazz and Motown cruises and holiday festival concerts in Monroe, we've got it all right here for you. I want to say thank you for all you do, all you give us. We, your fans, we just love you. And you know. wow, I appreciate that, Phyllis. Thank you so much. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable to get compliments to do something that you love doing so much, but I appreciate it. The Voice of Detroit, Sundays from 5 to 7 p.m. Ain't no stoppers now. We're on the move. 
910 AM Superstation is the voice of Detroit. We've assembled an unmatched roster of talent, topics, and opinions designed to reflect the heartbeat of the city. We've got it all. The news, the sports, politics, relationships, activists, and everything in between. We are 910 AM Superstation, the The voice of of Detroit. The Word Network is the largest African-American religious network in the world. And we're also the most versatile and easy to find. find. That's right. The Word Network isn't just a cable channel. We're an international network that brings you the best in gospel music and inspirational ministries. You can find The Word Network on Bright House Networks, Charter, Cablevision, AT&T, Cox Communications, DirecTV, Time Warner, UVerse, Verizon Fios, Roku, Google Fiber, Google Chromecast, Facebook Live, YouTube Red. Kindle Fire, Apple TV, Android and Apple devices, and even Continental, JetBlue, Frontier, and United Airlines. And coming soon to Hulu, Xbox, PlayStation, and more. No matter what device you have or where you are in the world, you can still take the Word Network with you. We are committed to making sure that finding the gospel is easy and convenient for our viewers. We are the Word Network, and we're everywhere you want us to be. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Voice of Detroit. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network. Hey, I want to remind you that uh, you can register for my online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. As soon as you register, there's about 16 hours of content to watch. It's about six hours of uh, course content. We do the classes live on Fridays, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All the sessions are recorded. If you miss anything, you can go back and watch it over and over again, okay? Uh, it's a 10-hour, five-week uh, online course. Uh, visit AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We deal with thousands of years of history. We deal with the history. We try to deal with it chronologically, okay? We deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. We deal with the African presence in this country called the United States of America, going back at least 51,700 years. We deal with how the Moors' 800-year occupation of Europe helped set up Christopher Columbus on his four voyages and how that helped to lay the foundation for slavery, racism, capitalism, the exploitation of indigenous people, and open up the so-called New World to other European nations. Okay, so visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and uh, you can register there, and all of my DVD lectures are there also. Okay. All right. So right before the break, we were talking about uh, 2016. The studies are out now. We know Pew Research uh, uh, had an article from May 12, 2017. Black voter turnout fell in 2016, even as record number of Americans cast ballots. Black voter turnout fell in 2016, even as record number of Americans cast ballots. Okay. So this is information that just came out. Um, this month. Now, on uh, on May 14th, on uh, AM Joy with Joanne Reed, Sunday, May 14th, uh, she did a segment dealing with this. And on the panel, she had Greg Pallast. Uh, Greg Pallast is an investigative uh, reporter. He's done a lot of work dealing with voter suppression. His website is gregpallast.com, gregpallast.com, P-A-L-A-S-T, gregpallast.com. And right on uh, the homepage of his website, he has uh, an article about the segment uh, on AM Joy. Okay, and you can watch the segment there as well. He talks about the cross-check system and 1.1 million voters 
removed from the voter rolls this past election cycle. This was initiated by Republicans to help Donald Trump win. All right. Um, and also AtlantaBlackStar.com has an article about this from February 13th, 2017. Now, I talked about this back at that time, but this comes up again. OK, because they talk about Greg Palast here in the article. All right. Name of this article is how to get rid of seven million African-American and Latino votes without anyone noticing how to get rid of seven million African-American and Latino votes without anyone noticing. If your vote didn't matter, why did they work so hard to suppress your vote? If your vote didn't matter, why did they work so hard to white 1.1 million people off of the voter rolls in key battleground states to give Republicans and Donald Trump an edge? Okay, let's go back to this clip. Tricks, and it's the one trick that may have uh, cost Clinton the White House. So it's not that black voters are too lazy to come out to vote. It's that they are trying to vote and their names have disappeared from the voter rolls. And, Janae, you know, Chris Kobach has a long history. Um, back when he was the uh, Kansas uh, uh, Secretary of State, um, he initiated so, nine different voter fraud investigations or, or multiple voter fraud investigations. He claimed there were 1.8 million people registered, um, illegal, uh, registered legally in his own state. This is him talking this week on Fox News about his sort of obsession, which is his allegation that there's massive, massive voter fraud. Look, voter fraud can affect any jurisdiction, any part of the country. And no, we don't go in with an assumption about what we're going to find. It, it, this commission is going in with an open mind. Let's just find what the facts are, find what the numbers are, and put them on the table. And I misstated that number a little bit. He, he, he convicted nine people of voter fraud when he was in Kansas out of 1.8 million people. Let's talk a little bit about this sort of issue. Is there a real issue of voter fraud, or is this an, a myth that is, exists in the minds of people like Chris Kobach? It is a myth that has been debunked over and over again. And the numbers that you just cited show precisely what the problem is. When you look at the vast number of eligible voters and active voters, and the infinitesimal number of convictions or instances of voter fraud, you see that this entire farce of election integrity is just pretext for a road toward increased voter suppression. And it's incredibly unfortunate that people are trying to lay the blame of this past election, the travesty of this past election, at the feet of African-American voters who have consistently tried to turn out to vote time and time again and, of course, were thwarted this election because of the loss of the Voting Rights Act. Many people don't realize that the democracy we've enjoyed for the past 50 years has been supported by the scaffolding of the Voting Rights Act, and that has now been taken away. And we see that states and localities have absolutely run amok. They have instituted strict photo ID laws. They have limited early voting. They have taken uh, eligible voters off the voter rolls and changed polling sites. The list goes on and on in terms of the number of violations, and we've been compiling them on our website. All of the changes that have been unleashed since 2013, since uh, losing Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Right. And we have a, a published report from our Thurgood Marshall Institute called Democracy Diminished, which actually chronicles all of the changes that have occurred. And, and, and meanwhile, if this is a push and pull, so I'm going to put a pin in that for just one moment and come back to it in a bit. Uh, but Crystal, um, if the election sort of had a push and a pull, you had a push of, of voters uh, that were sort of 
not allowed um, to go to the polls, right, particularly voters of color. But at the same time, there was this pull that Donald Trump exerted on white voters. And if we're talking about myths, you and I uh, talked about this, uh, you know, offline, uh, that one of the other myths is that the poll was only to white working class voters and not to mm. the white middle class. There was a great piece in The Atlantic um, that talked about cultural anxiety driving white working class voters to go to Trump. Um, but if you also, you know, and it sort of dug into it, fears of cultural displacement, support for deporting undocumented immigrants, aversion to investments in college education, identification with the Republican Party. But what's been left out of that uh, is the middle class white voters that were also pulled toward Donald Trump, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Cultural anxiety is not exclusive to the white working class. It's not exclusive to poor white people. Um, it also exists very much in the suburbs and was tapped into by Donald Trump. And, you know, it's such a complicated mix. There were some new studies out this week showing sort of the percentage of how impactful that cultural anxiety was versus economic factors. And it's so hard to pull them apart because it is all mixed together. The sentiment that things are changing and we can't control them is also tied into what's the future going to look like for me and for my children and for my grandchildren. But to, to sort of demonize the white working class and say it's your fault and you're all a bunch of racists and that's why we ended up with Donald Trump. This article and research shows that that's just not the case. So what I think we've got to do though focusing as a party moving forward is we've got to also think about you know how do we address the the real economic pieces which is something that our party has always stood for standing by working people in every community of every race and creed and religion um, how do we make sure that we're doing that and then the more complicated pieces how do we have a a better conversation about race because as you know, it's too simple to just say a bright, there's a bright line here and you're either a racist on this side or you're not on that side. There are people in all of our lives who we know who hold some views that when they, they come out, we say, well, that's not really okay. But we wouldn't say that they're bad-hearted people or that they're out-and-out -out racists. So how do we do that education process to start to bull people back in and really value every citizen in this country? And, so, and with that, I come to Robbie Jones, uh, my favorite statistician. Sorry to all my other statistician <laughs> friends. Um, because you really sort of live in these numbers, um, both your book, The End of White Christian America, which is required reading for everyone. Um, but in this data, which is the data I cited, which is your data, the PRI data, that talked about this sort of sense of cultural displacement among the white working class, the aversion to college investment, the fears of cultural displacement. Are we getting the terminology wrong if we're talking about those voters, those Trump voters as working class. A lot of these are police officers and firemen and plumbers and people with businesses. College, you know, These are sort of middle class people, right, that are Trump people. Well, it's, it's a little of both. I mean, what we set out to do in the study is to look at white, non-college educated uh, American, voters who uh, were paid by the hour, paid by the job, right? So not middle management. This is the group that we, were, we tried to look at, and mostly because there's been a big debate about this. I do want to say from the beginning, this is absolutely right that these cultural anxieties bleed all the way up uh, into the middle class. Um, but we were looking here at the white working class to get, because there's just been a lot of ink spilled about it was all about economic anxiety. And what we found actually is that cultural anxiety particularly uh, the idea that I and let me pause right here for just a minute we're going to continue this clip here but uh, in the clip about um, uh, what is this how many minutes is this into it uh, by 11 minutes in they show a chart now the article that Joanne Reed talked about from the Atlantic.com right name of that article is called it was cultural anxiety 
that drove white working class voters to Trump. It was cultural anxiety. Another word for cultural anxiety, let's tell the truth, is called white supremacy. Because they weren't, they weren't scared of Irish culture, Italian culture, German culture, Polish culture, uh, Greek culture. No, it, no, it's, 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 it's the fear of a browning of America. Just call it what it is, white supremacy. It's the know-nothing party of the 1840s and 1850s, the American party, the nativists, all over again, who had fears of uh, Irish immigrants coming to this country, taking their uh, jobs, had fears of Asians coming to this country back in the 1840s and 1850s. It's the same thing all over again, and they were ostensibly known as the know-nothing party, and they were made up of a lot of poor whites, okay? Is that all over again on steroids? Read this article from Atlantic.com, May 9th, 2017. It was cultural anxiety that drove white working class voters to Trump. A new study finds that fear of societal change, not economic pressure, motivated votes for the president among non-salaried workers without college degrees. Among non-salaried workers without college degrees. Read that article, okay? Now, in this clip here, uh, they show a chart uh, taking bullet points from the article from the Atlantic. And it says uh, predict, predictors, predictors of Trump's support among white working class. Number one, fears about cultural displacement. Fears about cultural displacement basically mean being ran, overran by Hispanics who Donald Trump said were taking their jobs. But he didn't talk about automation and software programs and technology displacing their jobs. See, Donald Trump didn't say that factory output has doubled since the 1980s, but corporations are doing it with one-third the labor force because they're using automation to do this. Yes, some jobs were shipped overseas. Yes, some jobs shipped to Mexico. But millions of jobs were eliminated by robotics, technology, software programs, things like this, and Trump doesn't want to talk about that. Number two, support for deporting undocumented immigrants. Support for deporting undocumented immigrants. But the real fight wasn't, wasn't about undocumented immigrants from Europe. That wasn't a fight. It was from Mexico. But the other thing is, is that you have more, but the other thing is that more Asians come to this country each year than Hispanics or Mexicans, but Asians are not demonized like Hispanics and Mexicans. Number three, aversion to investment in college education. Aversion to investment in college education. Number four, identification with Republican Party. Identification with Republican Party. Now, I don't know why they want to identify with the Republican Party, because in each state that has, uh, almost every state that has a Republican-dominated uh, state legislature and a Republican governor, what did they do? They passed right-to-work laws, which harm and lower the wages of the very white people who voted, who put those Republicans in office. If you look at just what happened in Kansas after the November 8th, 2016 election, right? They, they got a, a, a Republican dominated state legislature and a Republican governor. It's first time this happened in about a hundred years that they got all of it, right? The first law they passed was a right to work law and it, it weakened the unions and it harmed the very white people who voted to put these Republicans in office. This is the very first thing they did. Kick the ass of the people, of the poor white people that vote them in the office because they voted out of white supremacy. Let's just tell the truth. Okay? We, we have to be honest about this. 
All right. Some of them may have thought we're going to get more job scenes like this. What made you think that? I, I don't I don't understand that. OK. But you should you should be able to look around the country and see that you have right to work laws now. And I think Kansas, the state of Kansas, I think that was the 27th state. I think it was 27th. that have right to work laws. And these are in in Republican dominated states where you have. Republicans that control the, 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 the state legislature and, and the governorship, that should tell you something. Let's go back to this. This is, an, this is an example how elections have consequences. This is an example how elections have consequences. Let's go back to this clip. I sometimes feel like I'm a stranger in my own country, um, that the U.S. needs protection from foreign influences, and that we need to deport um, immigrants who are in the country illegally. These factors turned out to be, like, independently, even if we controlled for partisanship, and we controlled for income, and we controlled for religion, and we controlled for all kinds of demographic traits, even controlling for all of these things, these stood up as independent, the most powerful, independent predictors of support for Trump. And I think we really wanted to get that out there as, and certainly it is a both-and, there's no doubt about it, that the economic anxieties aggravate the cultural anxieties, but the statistical analysis um, um, suggests that the economic and the cultural are actually on two separate vectors. They certainly interplay, but the cultural ones are actually more powerful independently of predicting support for Trump. And, and to bring us sort of full circle then, Janae, then you wind up with that voter being very supportive of the idea of voter ID, because those same cultural anxieties will lead that voter, that voter who is either working class or maybe has little money and you know saved in a house to say you know what we should restrict voting which then actually impacts not only African Americans and Latinos but in a lot of cases poor whites so it's sort of a vicious circle it, it really is I mean strict voter ID laws affect the elderly they affect uh, students and young people they affect you know all sorts of marginalized populations and should be really interrogated by the American public they are not serving our democracy we should be moving toward democracy expanding measures like automatic voter registration and other ways to be far more inclusive than we are with these voter ID laws. And I'm not really sure that you can fully decouple cultural and economic anxiety because part of the culture of, of thinking of white privilege includes, you know, economic dominance or, or, you know, so I think some of these concerns are really all wrapped up together. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we're losing something, that this increasingly diverse electorate is a threat to white America at writ large, um, it really needs to be unpacked. Yeah, and, and Ari, you know, you write about this a lot because it does feel like these things are so intertwined that that anxiety produces support for these kinds of measures. Chris Kobach is going to have support out there for this idea of rooting out fake voter fraud. Um, where do you see any sort of energy, particularly on the congressional side, to do more to shore up the right to vote? Because it's working for one party right now the way it is. Well, absolutely. And all of these issues has been, have been intertwined. So the idea that you believe that millions of people are here illegally and you want to deport 11 million people means that then you're saying, well, millions of people are not only here illegally, they're voting illegally. Uh, and so they're not just stealing American jobs, they're stealing American votes. So uh, anxiety about immigration then becomes intertwined with anxiety about voter fraud. And it's interesting, whenever Trump is in a pickle, he goes back to voter fraud as his major issue. So yeah. when he loses the popular vote, he starts talking about voter fraud. Or when we have the largest marches in American history with the women's marches, he starts talking about voter fraud. Then when he's in the middle of firing the FBI director, he's back talking about yeah. voter fraud, even though there is no fraud. And I think there's a lot that we could be doing to make it 
easier to vote. Uh, Congress could restore the Voting Rights Act. There's bipartisan legislation right there to do it. In states like Oregon, where they've implemented automatic registration, we've seen very significant increases in registration among voters of color, very significant increases among young voters. So if you look at this data and you say uh, that black vote, the black vote is down, the Hispanic vote hasn't moved, uh, young voters aren't turning out at the rate we would like, right. you have to both counter voter suppression and you have to put in policies that make it easier to vote as well. Because when you do that, more people will turn out. Yeah, and then of course the irony is, is that the more young voters and people of color vote, the more people become anxious about those voters taking over. And it's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's the reason why we blended this together. This is a great panel. We will have to bring you all back. Janae Nelson, Ari Berman, Greg Palast, Crystal Ball, Robbie Jones. Thank you all for being here. And okay, so that was from May 14th, Sunday, May 14th, AM Joy. Black voter turnout fell for first time in 20 years. Black voter turnout fell for the first time in 20 years. Go to MSNBC.com. Check it out. Going quickly because we're coming up on a break. This article from AtlantaBlackStar.com. You can read this also. Once again, how to get rid of 7 million African-American and Latino votes without anyone noticing. February 13, 2017. They talk about Greg Pallas in here, who you just heard in the clip. Uh, Greg Pallas said, quote, we are really heading back to Jim Crow and that is not a joke, end quote, said investigative reporter Greg Palast, a best-selling author and producer of the documentary, The Best uh, Democracy Money Can Buy. The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. He said, quote, they are returning to those tactics of making voting very difficult for low-income individuals and people of color, end quote. Now, in, 2016, in the 2016 presidential elections, while African-American and Latino voters in states across the country flocked to the polls to cast ballots, a significant number found their names scrubbed from the voter rolls and their registrations were in question. Much of this can be attributed to a little-known process known as the Interstate Voter Registration Cross-Check Program. Okay, cross-check for short. Interstate Voter Registration Cross-Check Program. And this program matches names and compiles lists of citizens allegedly, allegedly registered in multiple states as potential threats for illegal voting. Since the stealth program initiated by Kansas Secretary of State and top Trump advisor Chris Kobach and backed via front organizations by the billionaire Koch brothers, does not publicly disclose data, it's very possible you may be among the 7.26 million potential illegal voters in 28 states included on the cross-check list and not know it, especially if you, especially if you are African-American. An extensive pre-election investigation by Greg Palace for Rolling Stone magazine based on, uh, secured, based on a secured uh, portion of the list, including 1 million targeted Voters found cross-check disproportionately identified the solid Democratic constituencies of African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, and young voters for massive potential registration purges. Okay, One consequence of such targeting is the disparate allocation of provisional ballots, ballots commonly disqualified in states where partisan election officials have the power to determine. Okay, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break because they talk about how the cross-check system impacted the Michigan vote. If you listen to the African History Network show, I'm Michael M. Hotep right here on 19A on the Superstation, the voice of Detroit. We'll be back in a few minutes. 
The Word Network is the largest African-American religious network in the world. And we're also the most versatile and easy to find. Easy to find. That's right. The Word Network isn't just a cable channel. We're an international network that brings you the best in gospel music and inspirational ministries. You can find The Word Network on Bright House Networks, Charter, Cablevision, AT&T, Cox Communications, DirecTV, Time Warner, UVerse, Verizon Fios, Roku, Google Fiber, Google Chromecast, Facebook Live, YouTube Red, Kindle Fire, Apple TV, Android and Apple devices, and even Continental, JetBlue, Frontier, and United Airlines. And coming soon to Hulu, Xbox, PlayStation, and more. No matter what device you have or where you are in the world, you can still take the Word Network with you. We are committed to making sure that finding the gospel is easy and convenient for our viewers. We are the Word Network, and we're everywhere you want us to be. If drama is what you want, law and order criminal intent is what you need. Who would do something like this? I don't know. But I can promise you this. Whoever did do this, we're going to get them. Law and Order CI does it all. Investigations, interrogations, and dissects the actions and motives of some of the most heartless criminals in New York City. It's Law and Order Criminal Intent, and it's airing on WADL Detroit, weekdays at 8 and 9 p.m. If you want to hear the voices of Detroit, look no further than 910 AM Superstation. No, you know, you're my favorite show. You come on right when I get off work, so you guys ride home with me every Monday. That is. I appreciate the companionship. Oh, but, I, I ride know, home with Angela every night. I, I like that. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, in a hot car. Good morning, Dieta. Good morning, Elena Harada. How are you? Good, how are you? For city clerk, it says very clearly, if there's only one person running for that office, you can only sign that one person's petition. The person running for the office said, no, you can go ahead and sign it. It just simply means that you can't sign it more than once. Our president has said that if China won't handle North Korea, we will. Check this out. First of all, impeachment is probably out of the question. 910 AM Superstation has the best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. Don't believe me? Just listen. 910 AM Superstation, giving you exactly what you need by any means necessary. Thank you for calling 910 AM Superstation. What's your question or comment? My thing is this. We keep blaming stuff on what the mom is not doing and what the son is doing. You got common sense and you got choice no matter who you are. And I want to quit this. Where's the daddy at? My father wasn't there. I was a good criminal and now I'm a good advocate for Detroit. Hey, man. So I knew to get myself out of this. There wasn't no daddy there to get me out of that. I had common sense. And then them judges, I was facing 60 years. Wow. So in other words, that'll wake you up. Sure will. That'll wake you right up. Gary on line one. Other non-blacks moving into this city with all type of incentives to move back into the city. But the people who you got here, you don't want to get any incentives. Call in and chime in on the conversation. Take down the number and lock us in your speed dial. It's 313-209-9000. That's 313-209-9000. The most powerful voices in the African-American community are all right here on the new 910 AM radio superstation. Nine ten AM Superstation is the voice of Detroit. We've assembled an unmatched roster of talent, topics, and opinions designed to reflect the heartbeat of the city. 
We've got it all. The news, the sports, politics, relationships, activists, and, and everything, everything in between. between. We are 910 AM Superstation, the, the voice, voice of, of Detroit. Detroit. 910 AM is everywhere you need us to be, literally. Broadcasting from Comerica Park, Race for the Cure. Susan G. Coleman, Carmanas, Race for the Cure, going on strong, and we are here live and in color. 910 AM Superstation. I'm Joanne Watson. We have a wonderful, wonderful special guest. It is wonderful to be here at the NAACP dinner once again here in Detroit. Tonight is a showcase of the power of the city of Detroit. The power of the NAACP to stand up for truth and justice. All of you have the power in your hands, and tonight we are showing that power. Well, we're not in the studio. We're actually at the Pablo restaurant at 7278 Dix Avenue on this fall through Friday. It is also Cinco de Mayo. The best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. 910 AM Superstation, the voice of Detroit. 910 AM Superstation isn't just any station. We're your station. So tell us what you just saw, what you feel, and what you want to know. Post your comments, questions, and pictures on our Facebook page, and we'll make it a topic of conversation. Take it to Facebook, and 910 AM Superstation will bring it to the streets. WFDF Farmington Hills, Detroit. 910 AM Superstation, a division of Adele Media. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the voice of Detroit. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. All right. Uh, right before the break, we'll go to the phone line in just a minute here. Let me just finish this up. Okay, so once again, check out the article from AtlantaBlackStar.com, How to Get Rid of 7 Million African American and Latino Votes Without Anyone Noticing. How to Get Rid of 7 Million African American and Latino Votes Without Anyone Noticing. Okay, so in the article... Once again, they talk about Greg Pallast, investigative reporter. You just heard him in the clip we just played. But Greg Pallast explains that the that uh, the cross check, the interstate cross checking system, match uh, their matching capacity is not being applied for accuracy, but for the broad targeting of traditionally Democratic voters with ethnically identifiable names. With ethnically identifiable names okay you got to study this now once again for all these people who say your vote doesn't matter and doesn't matter if you vote things like this why were they working so hard to suppress the african-american and hispanic vote if it didn't matter why were they working so hard not only did they implement the cross-checking system but you have 14 new states that have voter id laws and they're going to court ohio in ohio they took that case to the all the way to the u.s supreme court it's not free to take a, a lawsuit all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court? That's not free. Why did they do that if your vote didn't matter? Maybe they understand the power of your vote more than you do. So Greg Palace gives the example. Uh, if you take an African-American name or African-American sounding name like James Brown, and what the cross-check system was saying was that James Brown in Detroit, Michigan, was the same James Brown in Cleveland, Ohio. So they were making the case that this person is voting twice, so let's strike them from the voter rolls. This is what they did. This is the cross-checking system, okay? And they did this without relying upon distinguishing and available details like middle names and Social Security numbers. They just said James Brown in Detroit, Michigan is James Brown in Cleveland, Ohio, so let's strike their name from the voter rolls, okay? Jesus Garcia 
in southwest Detroit, Michigan. It's Jesus Garcia in Cleveland, Ohio. So let's strike them from the voter rolls. This is what happened. Now, while states like Oregon and Florida have pulled out of the cross-check system for related inaccuracies, other states continue to employ the controversial program. A clerk supplied Greg Palace, investigative reporter, with Virginia's 2014 cross-check list, which revealed that out of 342,556 names alleged to be registered in Virginia and another state, 41,637 names were discarded from the voter rolls, most of them just before Election Day. This is, in the, this is just in the state of Virginia. Out of 342,556 names that were alleged to be registered in Virginia and another state, 41,637 names were discarded from the voter rolls, most of them just before Election Day. In Michigan, you have 54,000 voter names purged from the voter rolls based upon double voter accusation because of the cross-check system in the state of Michigan. 54,000 voters wiped off the voter rolls in Michigan, and Donald Trump won Michigan by 10,704 votes, and, and uh, Jill Stein got 50,000 votes out of Michigan also, okay? In Pennsylvania, 45,000 voter names were wiped off the voter rolls because of this cross-check system. Is there any wonder while Donald Trump rewarded his, his good buddy, Chris Kobach, with the vice chair position on the Election Integrity Commission that's headed up by uh, uh, Vice President uh, 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 Mike Pence? Is it any wonder? In Georgia, a state where, where steadily increasing African-American and Latino populations threaten to overturn the red state status of Georgia, such tactics also are unfortunately alive and well. Okay, you can read the rest of this article. They talk about Georgia, everything. I don't have time to get into all this. Read this article, How to Get Rid of 7 Million African-American and Latino Votes Without Anyone Noticing. Now, I was looking at the voter suppression taking place, the new voter ID laws, 868 less uh, uh, voter locations this past election cycle, uh, all the tactics that, that you were using. And this is why I said you had to have uh, a massive number, a record number of African-Americans coming out to vote to overcome that voter suppression that was taking place. Okay. So we, we have to be strategic. Uh, we have to be strategic with this. Okay. I was going to go to the phone lines, but maybe, uh, maybe the caller call back in. Okay. All right. Call. Let's go to the phone lines. Is Sarah? Okay, Sarah, yeah, good. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you is. called back in because right. I, I was coming to you. Oh, yeah, I had to do that because it you know, becomes uh, courtesy. Now, what I wanted to say is I uh, was a manager of a voting uh, venue, and this was in, a, in the South. And um, the people were coming in and coming out. And uh, finally, I would say, well, how did you enjoy your voting experience since I was the boss? And so they said, well, uh, I couldn't vote because they said that they couldn't find uh, my name. Now, the people that were under me were African-American Negro women. They had come in with their chicken sandwiches and everything for a nice, um, which is picnic. But they had not gone to the classes to learn how to actually uh, manipulate the computer 
Now, Michael, if you, that's part of the, the program. You've got to know how to look these people's names up and verify that they are actually valid voters. So you're and talking about that, the poll workers. You're talking about the poll workers. I'm talking the poll workers. I'm, see, what you're doing is so it's five-star. I'm mm-hmm. at just adding on to it because mm-hmm. what you, they need to know, we need to know, myself, I needed to know because I might be a, a, a manager next time. But but I'm, I now have, know how to know, to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, they didn't know how to look the ma- these people's names up. But I reported them because they got upset. Please don't report us. But they didn't want to come to the class. You got to learn how to use these machines right. and everything. And so they um, they were denying the black people, which this was a gentleman who and a couple of more gentlemen and people who were African American. They were denying them the vote. Which city was this? Check these people's names. I I don't. I I really. I I could talk to you in private and tell you. Well, what state was it? What state was it? Tell me the state. If I tell you, then it is. It's not. It's one of the smaller states in in our country. Oh, okay. So that's why I I I didn't. So it wasn't Michigan. uh, But but if I was talking to you, I sure would tell you. It wasn't Michigan. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Michigan. No, it, it was not Michigan, okay. but what it, what, what, the reason I'm telling you is because the same thing probably happened all over. Mm-hmm. And the person who was teaching us, or superintendent, did an excellent job, but she saw me coming in there about three or four times. And she said, well, madam, uh, I'm not going to be able to pay you for each time that you come, and you've been coming quite a bit. I said, you know what, young lady, I didn't ask for any money. But I want to be comfortable with this procedure myself. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? I'm a citizen myself, a taxpayer. And it worked, Michael, because I did find people who did not know how to use it. Talking about the workers, we were able to get rid of them, and somebody was behind them also uh, of a party that you're just talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, quite important that if they don't know how to use it, then don't let them be there to turn our own people or turn people away, period. And one other thing I wanted to ask, uh, request, you know, there's a way that you can have people who come in and check the polls. I don't know if you, you you probably know about that. So they come in, they might be Democrats, they might be Republicans or what have you. They can check, well, how many people uh, voted. And you can really find out what, who they voted for. You won't be saying this is Michael and he voted for this. Mm-hmm. No, but you will find out how many Republicans and how many Democrats and that kind of thing. And I would hope that we do that here in Detroit because that way we can have these 18 and 19 year olds being poll watchers is what they call them, poll, poll watchers. watchers. Mm-hmm. And they can determine if some if the Democrats got this many votes and somebody else and Republicans got that vote. So that's what we need to do as well. See, that way we can double check. And then if they refuse to allow these young people to be poll watchers, sit outside the car with your parents and take a account. Talk to them. How did you, did you enjoy your vote? What, how many, you don't have to tell me who you voted for, but what party or what have you. So that we can have a better count, we don't have to have uh, people that we don't want in the power position to vote and get credit for it if we didn't check them. Right. Okay. All right. You thanks see for what calling. I'm Is it yes. Is- no, I understand. You're welcome. Yeah. Th- thanks for calling in. Okay. Thanks for calling in. I appreciate it, Sarah. Thank you. Okay. Um, so 
This is one of the things I will be talking about on Saturday, uh, May 27th at African Liberation Day. I'm speaking at either 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. Um, I'll be speaking in the afternoon. Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, African Liberation Day. Check out those articles that I gave you as well, okay? All right, so, you know, Thursday on Wake Up With Steve Hood. I'm on Steve Hood's show, the morning show, Wake Up With Steve Hood, every uh, Thursday morning, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. Well, actually, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., I should say, Eastern Standard Time. So this past Thursday, we talked about the verdict in the uh, Terrence Crutcher killing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by Officer Betty Shelby. And the verdict came late Wednesday evening, about 9 p.m. Wednesday evening, uh, 9 p.m. local time, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right? So a jury on Wednesday acquitted a white Oklahoma police officer in the shooting death of an unarmed African-American motorist in Tulsa, Oklahoma last year. Now, Tulsa police officer Betty Shelby, 43 years old, had been charged with manslaughter in the September 2016 shooting death of Terrence Crutcher, 40 years old, during an encounter that began with the report of a stalled vehicle. It began with the report of a stalled vehicle. The district attorneys uh, announced a verdict uh, had been reached shortly after 9 p.m. local time, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, more than eight hours after the liberation began. So the liberation was about nine hours. Um so there was an article from NBCNews.com about this on May 18th. Jury acquits Tulsa officer Betty Shelby in shooting death of Terrence Crutcher. Jury acquits Tulsa officer Betty Shelby in shooting death of Terrence Crutcher. May 20th, uh, yesterday, uh, NBCNews.com had an article, Terrence Crutcher shooting by Tulsa police was tragic but justified jury foreman. Terrence Crutcher shooting by Tulsa police was tragic but justified the jury, uh, jury foreman. And the jury that acquitted an Oklahoma police officer uh, on Wednesday in the fatal shooting of an unarmed driver agreed that the officer was justified in her, act, in her actions but still questioned her decision to pull the trigger. What's interesting is that she was the only officer on the scene who felt so threatened that she had to pull the trigger and then she only fired the gun one time. Her attorney said she's never been that scared in her life, yet she fired the gun only one time. So what was it so much about this black man that scared you so much but didn't scare the other officers that were on the scene with you and none of them felt the need to fire their gun? Now, in the letter made public uh, through the courts Friday and obtained by NBC affiliate KJRH, the jury foreman said that despite what the verdict may suggest, Many jurors had reservations about Tulsa police officer Betty Shelby's judgment and ability to perform as an officer. Let me repeat. Many jurors had reservation, had reservations about Tulsa uh, police officer Betty Shelby's judgment and ability to perform as an officer. They took particular issue with Betty Shelby's decision to not use a taser and pull her gun after encountering Terrence Crutcher on a roadway last year. Now, also, uh, earlier, because I have other articles dealing with this, uh, Benjamin Crump, attorney Benjamin Crump, showed a still photo of the window that they said that Terrence Crutcher, that she thought Terrence Crutcher was trying to reach in to possibly grab a weapon. Number one, no weapon was found, okay, 
Number two, the, the still photo that attorney Benjamin Crump, who was an attorney for the family, that he showed the window was, appeared to be, actually the window was rolled up and blood stains were on the window. This was, so this had to, so for blood stains to be on the window that was rolled up, that meant that the window was rolled up when he was shot because that was his blood stains on the window. So she gave the excuse, oh, she thought he was reaching into the window. This big bad, this big black man who uh, was unresponsive and appeared to be on drugs, walking away very, very slowly, walking away from them very, very slowly, and he ends up dead. And she felt the need to pull, to shoot and not use a taser, nor the officer felt so threatened to fire that gun. She was the only one who fired her gun. Now, um, the jury foreman uh, said, quote, because of this perceived option that she may have had, many on the jury could never get comfortable with the concept of Betty Shelby being blameless for Mr. Crutcher's death, end quote. The jury foreman who wished to remain anonymous wrote, I'm pretty sure they wished to remain anonymous. Still, the jury returned a not guilty verdict after nearly nine hours of deliberations Wednesday after Officer Betty Shelby, 43, testified that she feared for her life as Terrence Crutcher failed to listen to commands and moved unpredictably. His death was the latest in a number of high-profile shootings by police of unarmed African-American men. Now, on News One Now with Roland Martin, on Wednesday, because the, the jury verdict came that evening, that night, earlier in the day, that morning, News One Now with Roland Martin, they talked about the closing arguments, okay? Uh, let's go to this clip for this analysis. After seven days of testimony, closing arguments will begin today in the manslaughter trial of Betty Shelby, the Tulsa, Oklahoma police officer charged with killing Terrence Crutcher in September. Yesterday, the defense rested its case after calling fellow officers and experts to testify in support of Shelby. On Monday, Shelby told the jury a training video of an officer being fatally shot during a traffic stop was running through her mind when she found Crutcher stopped in the middle of the road. She claims she shot Crutcher after she saw him reach into his SUV through a partially open window and assumed he was grabbing a gun. Crutcher was not armed. His family and attorneys claim the windows to the SUV were rolled up at the time of the shooting. Shelby also says she could smell PCP on Crutcher, although she never told Tulsa police that during her interview. She admitted to practicing her testimony more than one thousand times since September with her attorneys. Shelby does say uh, Shelby says she does not regret shooting Crutcher and claims that's what she was trained to do. If convicted, Shelby could face between four years to life in prison. I want to go to our panel. I want to start with Monique Presley, uh, legal analyst, uh, attorney with the Presley firm. It is clear, Monique, if you listen to, to what she had to say, she is leaning on training, 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 training to get out of this shooting. Yes, and I'm optimistic uh, that that's going to work for her, unfortunately. 
it's one of those situations where the jury is going to be instructed to look at what was in the reasonable state of mind of the officer and what they were trying to do and what their experiences were at the time. And that's why, until we get these laws, laws changed, we see case after case that do not come down in favor of what we think is justice, but where the jury is actually applying the law. I want to go to our panel here. Uh, ben Crump, of course, sent out an email to several people, and he said the Tulsa police officer, David Walker, admitted in his trial testimony under cross-examination that he's been over homicide since 2011, investigated more than 300 murders, and had never shown a suspect a video of the incident before interrogating them except when he interviewed Betty Shelton. Well, their, tra their training, uh, Monique is right. The reasonableness standard is the mother's milk of police brutality. What would a reasonable person do? And like Monique said, once you can get that jury to put their entire lens in the hands of the police, well, in that case, then the, what the jury is saying is, well, I, I can't say because I'm not a cop. They're gonna, that's, that's the lawyer's strategy. Get them to trust what she's going to say and let her walk. Absolutely. One step forward. I've prosecuted criminal cases and defended them, and this jury instruction that they are often given, which it makes a distinction between a reasonable person standing for you and I, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So even someone who may have mental illness will follow that reasonable person standard. But a reasonable police officer standard is very different. And when the prosecutor explains that to the jury, when the defense team explains that to the jury, it is very difficult to get over it, particularly when officers are already given a benefit of the doubt simply because of their position in law enforcement. You know, any any all of these shootings have been very tragic, and I think the importance of this one is that you have to look at all of these cases one by one. I mean, this is not a case of you know every police officer is bad. Um, I, I think she, you know, her as people have mentioned, her defense has been slightly different that she she couldn't hear the things going around her that she was on kind of a personal trauma from the intensity of her training. And and look, I mean, you whether whether she's white or black, a, a, a lot of people. That, that's a believable circumstance for a mental state for someone Except to there's a problem. Please show the video. How about that? Show me the helicopter video. I want to see the helicopter video. So here's the deal. There were other officers there, and she's the only one who reacted in terms of shooting Terrence Crutcher. She, she has... That, but she has testified that she, um, at that point, she did not hear a single other. She did but not she realize. Okay, hold up, right. hold up. Right. So her husband's in a helicopter. She don't hear a helicopter. Right. There's an officer st literally standing over her right shoulder. Two more officers show up, but she don't hear or see none of them, Spencer. I, I mean, yeah. have, have you ever been in a life-threatening situation? Though no. I, I can't Listen, say I have. I don't, Sue, know. I don't Sue, I'm not going to say. A life-threatening situation is not when a guy is walking like a zombie right. he's walking so slow and that's and if you i mean and that's the difference you show the video this guy is walking very slowly and, and unfortunately for for for, for many monique one second monique one second spend to the money unfortunately for many black folks being stopped by the police is a life-threatening situation that's right monique 
No, a police officer is supposed to be trained to be in life-threatening situations. It's not a question of whether we've been in one. That's the place that the reasonable standard should work against them, not for them, because they are supposed to know how to listen and hear helicopters and observe the scene and perceive real threats and imagine threats. They're supposed to be able to do that. If she was poorly trained, if she had some sort of PTSD going on because of being frightened by some video that she had seen, then those are all flaws. That's failure of training. And in a civil case, that would help. I am concerned that in a criminal case, the standard is just too high because uh, all you get there is recklessness. All right. A peaceful protest turned deadly. All right. So that was Wednesday morning on News One Now with Roland Martin. So probably Monday, um, uh, well, I I don't think they talked about it uh, Friday morning. I'm not sure. I can't remember if they talked about it Friday morning. But next week, next Sunday, uh, we're going to get the post-verdict analysis as well to talk about that also. Okay. But on the on the uh, panel there, you heard Monique Presley, attorney, defense attorney. You heard Dr. Greg Carr, who's not only the chair of the Afro-American Studies Department at Howard University, he also has a law degree and he teaches uh a class on uh, race and uh, uh, race and law in Howard's Law School uh, as well. Okay, so check that out. Closing arguments in the Betty Shelby trial begin. Closing arguments in the Betty Shelby trial again. You can check that out at uh, on YouTube. Uh, that's on Roland Martin's uh, YouTube channel. Okay, on YouTube.com. All right. So uh, we and I talked about this. Uh, Thursday morning on uh, Wake Up with Steve Hood. Listen to me every Thursday morning, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the morning show here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation. Wake Up with Steve Hood. All right, well, look, last Sunday, you know, I talked about what happened on May 12th in uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, uh, redeclaring the war on drugs all over again, the failed war on drugs, right? And uh, Attorney Jeff Sessions instructed federal prosecutors on Friday, May 12th, uh, 2017, to take the most aggressive approach possible against uh, federal federal criminal defendants for low-level drug offenses. He ordered them to stop seeking leniency for low-level drug offenders and to start seeking the toughest uh, possible penalties, start seeking the toughest possible penalties. Uh, that's what uh, federal authorities used to do when the war on drugs fueled the passage of mandatory minimum sentences, uh, sentencing laws, okay, the passage of mandatory minimum sentencing laws. But under former President Barack Obama, the Justice Department tried to rein in the use of those statutes, which advocates say were used disproportionately against minorities and led to massive prison overcrowding. So if Obama didn't do anything. How could Jeff Sessions keep undoing what Obama did if Obama didn't do anything? You had a change under President Obama's Justice Department to stop charging low-level nonviolent drug offenders with the harshest uh, crimes and try, trying to get the harshest, longest penalties. Okay, and they're going back to this with Jeff, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions the third. Now. Uh, the policy change will result in lengthier 
prison sentences for low-level low-level drug offenders and likely reverse a recent drop in the federal prison population. But you've had a drop in the overall U.S. prison population also, not just the federal prison population. Now, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said on Friday, May 12th, that he has directed his federal prosecutors to pursue the most severe penalties, including mandatory minimum sentences. And we're going to get to the history of the Rockefeller drug laws because mandatory minimums did not start with the 1994 crime bill. They go back to 1973 in the state of New York with Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller and the Rockefeller drug laws. Now, in Jeff Sessions' first step toward, uh, in his first step toward a return to the war on drugs of the 1980s and 1990s, that war, that, that, those policies and that war on drugs resulted in long sentences for many minority defendants and packed U.S. prisons. Now, civil rights groups, Republican lawmakers, and even the conservative Koch brothers issued swift condemnation, issued swift condemnation uh, of the policy, uh, saying that Jeff Sessions was taking the nation backward uh, and aggressive uh, prosecutors, however, are likely to embrace the measure and uh, as giving them more tools to do their jobs. In the later years of the Obama administration, a bipartisan consensus emerged on Capitol Hill, especially in the U.S. Senate. You had a bipartisan consensus for sentencing reform legislation, and Jeff Sessions was opposed to this sentencing reform legislation. He is opposed to criminal justice reform, and he was successful at derailing the bipartisan consensus that existed in the U.S. Senate for prison sentencing reform. Now, most people don't know that the U.S. prison population is at its lowest point in 20 years because of policies from President Barack Obama. Newsweek.com had an article uh, December 29, 2016, and the name of the article is The U.S. Prison Population Exceeded 1.5 Million in 2015. The U.S. Prison Population Exceeded 1.5 Million in 2015. Uh, and in the article, it says the U.S. prison population failed the most in almost four decades to 1.53 million inmates in 2013. It's not 2.3 million anymore. Because of policies from President Barack Obama, is falling to 1.53 million, the lowest in 20 years. This resulted in the lowest rate of incarceration in a generation. And there was a report from December 2016 from the Department of Justice that, that revealed this information. Now, the drop in the U.S. prison population has been driven by changes in federal and state corrections policies that include drug treatment programs and the sentencing of fewer nonviolent drug offenders to federal prisons. Okay? Now, we're coming up on a break. When we come back from a break, we're going to deal with how prosecutors are pushing back against Jeff Sessions' order to pursue more severe penalties. Prosecutors are pushing back against this because they said this didn't work back in the 80s and 90s. It's not going to work now. Weather by weather vision, mostly cloudy in Detroit, 67 degrees. Dress accordingly. You're listening to 910 AM, the Superstation, the African History Network show on Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. If you want to hear the voices of Detroit, look no further than 910 AM Superstation. 
as opposed to somebody writing a report on the obvious that the fact that whites have treated blacks inferior, that jobs have left Flint, others have pulled out of Flint, that resources have not been sent to Flint, you know, the way that they're sent to other communities. Because I believe that the report actually came to the conclusion that, oh my God, had this happened in another community like Birmingham Bloomfield, clearly the government would have stepped in and we would have gotten to a point where the water would not have been poisoned. We still own the largest freshwater system in the world uh, in that we are people who are connected to the water. We're like a tree standing right. by the water who will not be moved. So Detroit ought to have the best policy on water. 910 AM Superstation has the best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. Don't believe me? Just listen. The Word Network is the largest African-American religious network in the world. And we're also the most versatile and easy to find. Easy to find. That's right. The Word Network isn't just a cable channel. We're an international network that brings you the best in gospel music and inspirational ministries. You can find The Word Network on Bright House Networks, Charter, Cablevision, AT&T, Cox Communications, DirecTV, Time Warner, UVerse, Verizon Fios, Roku, Google Fiber, Google Chromecast, Facebook Live, YouTube Red. Kindle Fire, Apple TV, Android and Apple devices, and even Continental, JetBlue, Frontier, and United Airlines. And coming soon to Hulu, Xbox, PlayStation, and more. No matter what device you have or where you are in the world, you can still take the Word Network with you. We are committed to making sure that finding the gospel is easy and convenient for our viewers. We are the Word Network, and we're everywhere you want us to be. Every weeknight at 9 p.m. is something new and something fresh. This is Todd Corser, and I want you to check out my show. Listen in and call every week as we explore government and hot topics. Tune in, raw and uncut. This is attorney Michael Schwartz at 910 a.m. Superstation, and you can hear me every Tuesday night starting at 9 p.m. Hello, Detroit. This is attorney Crystal Crittenden, and please tune in to my new show, The Truth Matters, on 910 a.m. Superstation. Hello, everyone. I'm Charlene Mitchell, your host of Mind Your Business. Listen to my show live every Thursday from 9 to 11 p.m. I'm Reverend Maya Walisa Reynolds inviting you to listen to Mama Maya Speaks. Friday evenings from 9 until 11 p.m. Discussing education, motivation, and inspiration on Superstation 910 a.m. Different names, different voices, but the same energy. 910 a.m. Superstation, the voice of Detroit. 910 a.m. is everywhere you need us to be, literally. Broadcasting from Comerica Park, Race for the Cure. Susan G. Coleman, Carmanas, Race for the Cure, going on strong, and we are here live and in color. 910 a.m. Superstation. I'm Joanne Watson. We have a wonderful, wonderful special guest. It is wonderful to be here at the NAACP dinner once again here in Detroit. Tonight is a showcase of the power of the city of Detroit. The power of the NAACP to stand up for truth and justice. All of you have the power in your hands and tonight we are showing that power. Well, we're not in the studio. We're actually at Demi Pablo Restaurant at 7278 Dix Avenue on this fall through Friday. It is also Cinco de Mayo. The best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. 910 AM Superstation, the voice of Detroit. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the voice of Detroit. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. 
founder of the African History Network. We're here uh, every Sunday, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and also you can listen to podcasts of our shows, podcasts and broadcasts I do throughout the week at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Right on the homepage, click on Listen to Podcasts of the shows. We have over 700 podcasted episodes. I do Facebook Live broadcasts on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. And um, I, I put those um, uh, broadcasts in the audio podcast form as well and put them on iTunes also. So right before the break, we were talking about uh, um, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, redeclaring, basically redeclaring the war on drugs May 12, 2017. But there's an article from the Washington Post from May 19th. Prosecutors are pushing back against Sessions' order to pursue severe penalties. Prosecutors are pushing back on um, Sessions' order uh, to pursue severe penalties. And in the article, you can read this yourself, but in the article it says, a, a week after U.S. Attorney Jeff, Ses Jeff Sessions told federal prosecutors to, quote, change and pursue the most serious, readily provable offense, end quote, and follow mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines, a bipartisan group of prosecutors at the state and local level is expressing concern. 30 current and former state and local prosecutors have signed an open letter which was released Friday by the nonprofit Fair and Just Prosecution, a national network working with newly elected prosecutors. Uh, the prosecutors say that even though they do not have to answer Sessions' call, the U.S. Attorney General's directive, um, uh, quote, marks an, uh, marks an unnecessary and unfortunate return to past tough-on-crime practices that will do more harm than good uh, in their communities, okay? Now, uh, Miriam Krensky, K-R-N-S-K-Y, who's, who's a former federal prosecutor and executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution, said what you're seeing in this letter is a different wind of change that's blowing through the criminal justice field, okay? Uh, she goes on to say, quote, there does seem... At the, there does seem at the federal level to be a return to the tough on crime, seek the maximum sentence, charge and pursue whatever you can prove, uh, can, whatever you can prove approach. Uh, but she added uh, that at a local level, some believe, quote, there are costs that flow from prosecuting and sentencing and incarcerating anyone and everyone who crosses the line of the law. And we need to be more selective and smarter in how we promote both the safety and the health of our communities, end quote. You can check out the rest of this at um, WashingtonPost.com, WashingtonPost.com. Prosecutors are pushing back against Sessions' order to pursue severe penalties. Uh, prosecutors are pushing back against Sessions' order to pursue severe penalties. This is from May 19th. 2017. Okay, and then HuffingtonPost.com had an article from uh, from the 19th, okay, a couple of days ago, um, which was um, 19th was Friday, from Friday, right? Now, this is for the people who keep talking about what Obama didn't do. When did you go research this? Federal Bureau of Prisons fires head of an Obama era education effort put in reform under Trump in doubt. 
Federal Bureau of Prisons fires head of an of an Obama era education effort putting reform under Trump in doubt. The Obama administration hired Amy Lopez last year, 2016, to overhaul educational programs for prisoners with the hope of easing their reentry into society. This is under President Obama. The Obama administration brought in Amy Lopez to do this, right, uh, to overhaul educational programs for federal prisoners with the hope of easing their reentry into society and reducing recidivism. Amy Lopez was fired last week, leaving the future of the reform efforts under President Donald Trump in doubt. Okay? So she's fired, from my understanding, by, by Jeff Sessions. Okay? Because Jeff Sessions is not for the, all this prison reform and educating prisoners and all this stuff. No, he wants to lock them up, lock them up, lock them up for as long as you can. Now, Amy Lopez declined to comment last week Thursday saying she needed to speak with an attorney uh, before she could uh, talk to a reporter. A Justice Department spokeswoman said on Thursday she was not aware of Amy Lopez's firing or broader changes to the prison reform plans the Obama administration put in place and referred questions to the Bureau of Prisons. Now, a Bureau of Prisons, BOP, spokeswoman said on Friday, May 19th, uh, that the agency had, quote, no announcement or updates regarding our programs at this time, end quote. All right. Now, uh, Amy Lopez uprooted her whole life to take the job as superintendent of the Bureau of Prisons Education, uh, their education department, okay, uh, according to a person who worked on the efforts. In November 2016, Amy Lopez left a job in Texas where she worked as an educator in the prison system. The job she accepted under former President Barack Obama would have put her in charge of what the Department of Justice called a, quote, semi-autonomous school district within the federal prison system, end quote, with the goal of giving prisoners the opportunity to earn their high school diploma and pursue post-secondary studies. Former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, who Donald Trump fired after she outed Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who Trump had to end up firing as his national security advisor after 24 days on the job. Former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, who was largely driving the prison reform initiative, said in a press release in November 2016 that the changes would, quote, make our prisons more effective, end quote, and reduce recidivism and therefore prevent crime, prevent crime by, quote, equipping inmates with the tools they need to successfully re-enter society, end quote. This was going on under the Obama administration. The woman heading up this re-education program was just fired under Jeff Sessions. So how could Jeff Sessions keep on doing what Obama did if Obama didn't do anything? So check out the rest of this article. February, Federal Bureau of Prisons fires head of an Obama-era education effort putting reform under Trump in doubt. Because Donald Trump does not talk about criminal justice reform. Donald Trump does not talk about making it easier for prisoners to re-enter society. 
and get a fair shot. No, Donald Trump ran on the platform of law and order. He said, I want to be the law and order candidate, the law and order president. All right, now, when we look at law and order, we look at the Rockefeller drug laws, right? NPR.org had an article about the Rockefeller drug laws in the history. Now, the United States puts, some, uh, puts more people behind bars than any other country, five times as many per capita compared with Britain or Spain. We know definitely a few years ago when it was at the peak of 2.3 million. It wasn't always like this, however. Half a century ago, relatively few people, relatively few people were locked up, and those inmates, inmates generally served short sentences, short sentences. But 40 years ago, New York passed, the state of New York passed strict sentencing guidelines known as the Rockefeller drug laws after their champion, Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller, who was a Democrat, I mean, it's a Republican, Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller, Republican. And the, this, these Rockefeller drug laws uh, put even low-level criminals behind bars for decades. Mandatory minimums did not start with the 1994 crime bill. They go back to 1973 with the Rockefeller drug laws. Those tough on crime policies became the new normal across the country. But a, but a new debate is underway over the effectiveness of tough sentencing laws. A new debate is underway under the effectiveness of tough sentencing laws. Now, in a little town in, the, in northern New York called Raybrook, B-R-O-O-K, an old hospital and a complex for athletes who competed in the Winter Olympics is nearby Lake Placid, now, uh, now, uh, house in, now it houses inmates. One is a state prison, the other a federal correctional facility. They're, they are part of a massive infrastructure that sprang up in America over the past 40 years a prison network that now houses, but at the time, because uh, this article came out 2013, at the time, 2 million people. It peaked at 2.3 million. It's now down to 1.53 million. The thing that sparked the prison boom was a new set of ideas about how communities and neighborhoods could be made safer. Now, if we go back to the 1970s in New York City, New York City, New York City was battling a heroin epidemic. There were junkies on street corners. The homicide rate was four times as high as it was in 2013. Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller, New York's Republican governor, had backed drug rehabilitation, job training, and housing. He saw drugs as a social problem, not a criminal problem. He saw drugs as a social problem, not a criminal problem. But the political mood was hardening. President Richard Nixon declared a national war on drugs. And so Richard Nixon declares his war on drugs June 17, 1971. Okay. And, it, and he, he, he went before Congress and declared his war on drugs, asked for funding to, to, to help fund the war on drugs, things like this. And it was based upon lies. Okay. And John Ehrlichman talked about this in the interview that he did in 1994 with Dan Baum. Uh, writer and author Dan Baum, and it was the uh, cover story for the April 2016 issue of Harper's Magazine called Legalize It All, Legalize It All. So in the 1970s, 
Um, you have Richard Nixon's War on Drugs in 1971. You're going to have movies like the uh, you're going to have movies like the French Connection, uh, movies like uh, Panic in Needle Park, things like this. Okay, and these movies are going to uh, change some people's perception. They help spread the sense that America's cities were unraveling. Now, late in 1972. One of uh, Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller's closest aides, Joseph Persico, P-E-R-S-I-C-O, Joseph Persico, was in a meeting with Governor Rockefeller, and he says the governor suddenly did a dramatic about-face. Persico said, uh, uh, the governor said, finally, he turned and said, for drug pushing, life sentence, no parole, no probation. Okay? Now, Governor Rockefeller wanted to run for president. So you had a mood changing across the country coming from the war on drugs and also news stories and, and, and things like this, because what, what Dan Baum said was that they realized that the, the war on drugs was against the anti-war left, the hippies and against the African-American community. And they, he said they, they knew that they could not make it illegal to be against the war or to be black. But he said by associating marijuana with the anti-war left and associating heroin with the African-American community and criminalizing both of those communities, he said we knew we could then do surveillance of their communities, raid their offices, offices, lock up their leaders, things like this, and flood the evening news with negative stories about these two targeted groups. Okay, this is what Dan, this is what John Ehrlichman, who was uh, uh, Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor, told Dan Baum in an interview in 1994 about what the war on drugs was really about. So. You have Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller, who now wants to run for president amid this atmosphere. So he's changing his stance on drugs to uh, coincide with the growing mood in the country. Okay, so um, Persico, so so Persico says Rockefeller decided that more progressive approaches to drug addiction had simply failed, okay? More progressive approaches to drug addiction had simply failed. The governor had heard about this new zero-tolerance approach to crime while studying Japan's war on drugs, okay? And um, he said that um, if we go back and look at his statement, he said uh, uh, Rockefeller turned to him and said, for drug pushing, life sentence, no parole, no probation. This was the moment when the seeds of the modern prison system were planted. Because in uh, about 1973, right around then, you only had 330,000 people in prison in this country. You only had about 330,000 people in prison in this country. And it's going to, it's going to over the coming decades, balloon up to 2.3 million. Now, um, Rockefeller said, I have one goal and one objective, and that is to stop the pushing of drugs and to protect the innocent victim. Okay. Uh, Percy Cole goes on to say that uh, he said, and uh, we all looked a little bit shocked. And one of the staff said, sounds a little bit severe. 
And he said, that's because you don't understand the problem. And then we realized he was very serious. Now, Governor Rockefeller launched his campaign to toughen New York's laws at a press conference in January of 1973, almost exactly 40 years ago when, when, from the time this article was written in 2013. He called for something unheard of at the time. Governor Rockefeller called for something unheard of at the time. Mandatory prison sentences of 15 years to life for drug dealers and drug addicts, drug dealers and drug addicts, even those caught with small amounts of marijuana, cocaine, or heroin. This is, this is where the mandatory minimums come from. Now, from the start, Rockefeller's policy drew sharp criticism from drug treatment experts and some politicians who called the sentences draconian. But no one really understood what the laws would mean or how many millions of people they would reach. Okay? So, and, and what happened was this largely affected African Americans and Hispanics. Okay? Now, the Rockefeller drug law sailed through New York State Legislature, and pretty quickly, this idea of getting tough, even on petty criminals, went viral, spreading across the U.S. Other states started adopting mandatory minimum and three-strike laws, and so did the federal government. But what you're going to see is you're going to see in the 70s, going into the late 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s, states had already started passing longer, harsher prison sentences before the crime bill was signed into law in 1994. All that, all that stuff did not come from the crime bill. This stuff goes back decades before that. You got to remember, Ronald Reagan declared war on drugs in 1982. And then the school to prison pipeline, we see the foundation of that in 1986 coming out of the Just Say No program with Operation Dare that his wife, Nancy Reagan, led. Okay, and this leads to legislation in later 1986 with the drug free, uh, drug free uh, school zone compliance act and the zero tolerance policies, all this stuff, which lays the foundation for the school to prison pipeline. Now, um, prosecutors in New York, in the state of New York, realize that the laws, the Rockefeller drug laws were doing uh, uh, what they were doing was unexpected and, and very troubling. White people were using a lot of drugs in the 1970s, as they are right now. White people were using a lot of drugs in the 1970s and committing a lot of crimes. Yet the people being arrested and sent to prison under the Rockefeller drug laws came almost entirely from uh, poor black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Okay, So uh, due in part to Rockefeller-style laws, the nation's prison population exploded. From 330,000 prisoners in 1973 to a peak of 2.3 million prisoners. Okay, that meant hundreds of new state and federal prisons. And by 2010, more than 490,000 people were working as prison guards. Okay, so check out this article from uh, NPR.org. Uh, this deals with the uh, history of the Rockefeller drug laws, the drug laws that changed how we punished. The drug laws that changed how we punish. This deals with the Rockefeller drug laws, NPR.org, okay? This day in African-American history, Thomas Fats Waller, pian a pianist and composer, was born in New York City. This date in 1904. Waller is well known for his hits, Ain't Misbehaving and Huckle, uh, Honeysuckle Rose. Um, also, this date in African-American history, um, let's see, Lowell, Lowell, 
Lowell W. Perry was confirmed chairman of the Equal Opportunity Commission on this date in 1975. Uh, Charles Edward Alexander Chuck Berry recorded his tune, Maybelline, this date in 1955. That was his full name. Charles Edward Alexander Chuck for short Berry uh, recorded his hit Maybelline, this date in 1955. Christopher J. Perry, founder of the Philadelphia Tribune, the newspaper, the African-American newspaper, died on this date in Philadelphia in 1921, Christopher J. Perry. Uh, you can read more facts about this date in African-American history and African history at yenoba.com, Y-E-N-O-B-A, yenoba.com, Y-E-N-O-B-A. Hey, remember to come to African Liberation Day this Friday and Saturday, May 25th and uh, May 26th and Saturday, May 27th. It's free both days. Bring the family. There'll be edutainment, a lot of information. Um, I'm speaking on Saturday, May 27th, either 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. Friday, it starts at 6 p.m., usually runs 6 p.m. to like 9 p.m. Uh, Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. usually. Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, 315 East Warren Avenue, Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, Dr. Ron Daniels speaking, Dr. Julian Malvo, Nikichi Taifa, the Honorable John Conyers, Congressman from Detroit, and Cam Howard. This year's theme, Reparations, Resistance, Rebellion, Liberation Through Education, two-day event. And uh, you can sign up for uh, the online classes that I teach, like uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And we got to get out of here. Stay tuned for Fatima and Between the Lines. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We'll talk to you next week. Peace. 910 AM Superstation, giving you exactly what you need by any means necessary. You're okay, you're fine. Well, thank you. I was in my third trimester. Okay. <laughs> I was really in my third trimester. Oh, you went to delivery? I was wait a minute. I was crowning. I said, I'm going to get my body tight. I changed my eating style. No carbs, no sugar. I started February 1st. Black History Month. No chitlin. Mm. No collard greens. Mm. No pork rinds. Guess how many pounds I have lost? 28 pounds. You go, Aaron. I can tell. I'm okay. seriously, I can really tell. I told you that. Social media can be dangerous. Absolutely. Oh. You know, I've, I've had people call me and go, why don't you like my posts on Facebook? Yes. And I go, what? <laughs> I mean, I have... <laughs> I have people on Instagram. I don't. I can't. I'm. I might miss one. It's serious. I mean, I know I'm pretty social media-ish, but I might miss one. We are 9:10 a.m. Superstation, the voice of Detroit. 9:10 a.m. is everywhere you need us to be, literally. Broadcasting from Comerica Park, Race for the Cure. Susan G. Coleman, Carmanis, Race for the Cure, going on strong, and we are here live and in color. 9, 10 a.m. Superstation. I'm Joanne Watson. We have a wonderful, wonderful special guest. It is wonderful to be here at the NAACP dinner once again here in Detroit. Tonight is a showcase of the power of the city of Detroit, the power of the NAACP to stand up for truth and justice. All of you have the power in your hands, and tonight we are showing that power. Well, we're not in the studio. We're actually at Mi Pablo Restaurant at 7278 Dix Avenue on this fall through Friday. It is also Cinco de Mayo. The best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. 910 AM Superstation, the voice of Detroit.
Be sure to catch Doing the D with Alexander Zonchek right here on 910 AM Superstation. And you know what that means? Lots of cool stuff. If you love gospel and jazz and Motown cruises and holiday festival concerts in Monroe, we've got it all right here for you. I want to say thank you for all you do, all you give us. We, your fans, we just love you. And you know. Wow, I appreciate that, Phyllis. Thank you so much. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable to get compliments to do something that you love doing so much, but I appreciate it. The Voice of Detroit, Sundays from 5 to 7 p.m. The Word Network is the largest African-American religious network in the world. And we're also the most versatile and easy to find. find. That's right. The Word Network isn't just a cable channel. We're an international network that brings you the best in gospel music and inspirational ministries. You can find The Word Network on Bright House Networks, Charter, Cablevision, AT&T, Cox Communications, DirecTV, Time Warner, UVerse, Verizon Fios, Roku, Google Fiber, Google Chromecast, Facebook Live, YouTube Red. Kindle Fire, Apple TV, Android and Apple devices, and even Continental, JetBlue, Frontier, and United Airlines. And coming soon to Hulu, Xbox, PlayStation, and more. No matter what device you have or where you are in the world, you can still take the Word Network with you. We are committed to making sure that finding the gospel is easy and convenient for our viewers. We are the Word Network, and we're everywhere you want us to be. If drama is what you want, law and order criminal intent is what you need. Who would do something like this? I don't know. But I can promise you this. Whoever did do this, we're going to get him. Law and Order CI does it all. Investigations, interrogations, and dissects the actions and motives of some of the most heartless criminals in New York City. It's Law and Order Criminal Intent, and it's airing on WADL Detroit, weekdays at 8 and 9 p.m. If you want to hear the voices of Detroit, look no further than 910 AM Superstation. No, you know, you're my favorite show. You come on right when I get off work, so you guys ride home with me every Monday. There it is. I appreciate the companionship. I I ride home with Angela every night. I I like that. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, in a hot car. Good morning, Dieta. Good morning, Elena Harada. How are you? Good, how are you? For city clerk, it says very clearly, if there's only one person running for that office, you can only sign that one person's petition. The person running for the office said, no, you can go ahead and sign it. It just simply means that you can't sign it more than once. Our president has said that if China won't handle North Korea, we will. Check this out. First of all, impeachment is probably out of the question. 910 AM Superstation has the best, the brightest, and the bravest voices in the urban community. Don't believe me? Just listen. We're the hottest station in town. Whatever you need, it's right here on 910 AM Superstation. The most powerful voices in the urban community. The most powerful voices in the African-American community are all right here on the new 910 AM Radio Superstation. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 910 AM Superstation or Adele Media. WFDF Farmington Hills, Detroit. 910 AM Superstation, a division of Adele Media. When you think of the voices of Detroit, there's only one station that comes to mind. 910 AM Superstation. We're the voice of reason. The thing that we've done that we don't do anymore is we used to fund our own work. We used to fund our own resistance. 
Absolutely. And whether that was a dollar or two dollars or five dollars or getting with your cousin that had a good job that could get you a thousand dollars, we did that. Next call it. 910 AM Superstation. What's your question or comment? These guys today have no clue on what a man is. Wow. You're supposed to cry in front of your girl. She's supposed to hug you. Your mama did it. These men, when they get around another man and say, and they did, when I grew up, you stay told guys, man. Don't let your girl have a word in. You better hit her. You better this and that. Wow. I that. My mama raised seven boys and one girl, and she would stomp you. I ain't, it wasn't about no daddy. <laughs> <laughs> we are 910 AM Superstation, the voice of Detroit. Between the lines. Nobody, like anyone else. We're about. going between the lines. You go over between the lines. Between the lines. Between the lines. We're going between the lines. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Between the Lines with Fatima Salman. Thank you for tuning in or staying tuned in. I appreciate the people that stay tuned in also. We have a really interesting show tonight. Um, A little bit more on the historical side, a little bit more on the intellectual side, something to make you think. Um, And so I am going to go straight into it uh, and uh, welcome my two guests who are on the line with me. Rena and Jonathan, how are you guys there? Hey, Rena. Hey, thanks for having me on. Oh my God, I'm so happy you're on. And Jonathan, thank you for getting on. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, evening. <laughs> it's evening, and it's definitely evening, right? Um, so I have two wonderful guests with me. I'm honored to have you both on, and I'm going to give a little bit of an intro. On both of you, one is a local Michigander. Go Michigan! Um, Rena is the deputy director of the ACLU of Michigan, and um, we have a little bit of her bio too. Has devoted her career to storytelling, action, and activism. As part of the senior management team, she works in conjunction with ACLU's legislative and development departments to increase understanding and appreciation of the Bill of Rights, which is wonderful that you're um, that, that you're doing that because actually the next part of our segment after this segment is going to be on the Bill of Rights. Um, Rena lectures often on anti-Muslim bias, the importance of storytelling, free speech, and the intersection of race, faith, gender, and sexual orientation. Um, I didn't know this about you, Rena, that in the past year, the Washington Post has published two op-eds written by you, Stop Asking Me to Condemn Terrorists Just Because I'm Muslim, and How Muslim Women Bear the Brunt of Islamophobia. And, and when I was reading that in your bio, I'm like, oh my God, I need to have Rena on just on those two topics, actually. <laughs> so this is not the last time Rena is going to be on the show. It's only the first. Right, Rena? Absolutely. Okay. You you call and I'll answer. <laughs> Great. Now, I'm going to one of these days you're going to be in studio with me. Just wait. Just wait. I got you. I'm going to get you in here. And Absolutely. Jonathan, you are the legal director at Muslim Advocates. Um, most recently, Jonathan served as senior counsel to the assistant attorney general in the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, where he helped manage the department's work on religious discrimination, LGBTQ rights, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, and appellate matters. So um, thank you both for being on. Um, thank you both for the work that you do. I think that that is something that we can't we can't stop thanking you both on because I I know um, the amount of hardships and stress and round the clock work that you're doing, which is indicative of the time that you're on with me tonight. Because this work is <clears throat> really it's become around the clock, right? I mean, for both of you, 
We can even talk about that to start off with. Rena and Jonathan, can you tell me just how has your work changed in the past few months? Just even the amount of work that you guys have both been doing around the clock? Rena, go ahead. It's it's really been like nothing else um, I've seen. Um, I've been at the ACLU since 2006, so even through the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and let's be clear when it comes to Muslim rights, um, you know, anti-Muslim bias, particularly policies against Muslims Mm -hmm. um, at the highest levels of our government, didn't start with this election. They've been going on, and in fact, this is really a continuation of those 16 years, but the animus, the hate, the um, nonstop attacks on not just the Muslim community, but all our communities that we care about uh, has definitely made it a um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, very little sleep, but, you know, I'm fortunate and privileged to be able to work for an organization like the ACLU so that I can make a difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like a historic time, and you're in, in, in the brunt of all of it, and, and we appreciate the work that you do. Jonathan, I believe you just started with Muslim Advocates. Could you tell me a little bit about Muslim Advocates before we go into the lawsuits that both of you have filed separately? Sure, and thanks again for having me on this evening. Uh, Muslim Advocates, we are a national civil rights organization that is dedicated to making sure that all people can live and worship freely from discrimination, no matter you know where they come from, the color of their skin, what they believe. Obviously, we are very concerned, as our name would suggest, about the rights of, of Muslims and here in America. But I think we're really devoted to protecting the rights of people of all faiths um, and have been, you know, you know, as was just mentioned, really concerned about, I think, the uptick in discrimination and harassment and violence that we see um, towards many, I think, minority communities, um, including the American Muslim community, but also issues affecting um, anti-immigrant issues, issues affecting the African-American community, uh, all issues that are a deep concern to us at Muslim advocates as well. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, you know, on that comment, I'm going to go into that a little bit later in the interview. But I want to start off by asking both of you. So both of you um, have, uh, from separately from your both respective organizations, have both filed lawsuits against the Muslim ban. So, Rena, if you could start telling me a little bit about the ACLU of Michigan um, lawsuit. And, and I want to make it also clear that it's not an ACLU national lawsuit that's been filed. It's actually ACLU of Michigan. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't many other lawsuits that the ACLU 